Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 through 7. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. For a few years now, we have utilized the wisdom of the Proverbs for our call to confession. Beginning today, however, we'll take a brief leave from Proverbs and examine the Ten Commandments. First, as a preface, God gives the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In this statement, God presents to us the threefold basis for the authority he possesses to give such commands and expect obedience. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God is Lord, the supreme ruler of the entire universe. He possesses lawful dominion over everything. This fact alone is sufficient for him to command anything of us and expect obedience. But he does not stop there. He does not simply say, I am the Lord, therefore you will obey me. Our God is not a tyrant. He does not compel us to obey out of fear. Instead, he draws us with his kindness. He says, I am the Lord, your God. He has given himself to us to be our God, just as he promised through the prophet Jeremiah. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He is holy above all things, and yet he condescends to us. He declares himself to be our Father and cares for us as his children. This is love that is worthy of our devotion and basis enough to expect our obedience. But he does not stop there. He reminds us that according to his great power as Lord and the love he has for us as our God, he saved us from bondage, the bondage of sin and death. So when he gives us his Ten Commandments, he does so on the basis that he is Lord, that he is our God, and he has redeemed us. This, in a sense, is a cord of three strands that binds us to him. Naturally, then, it follows that our trust and adoration are for him alone. Therefore, we indeed should have no other gods before him. And yet, we often do turn to other gods. We know the Israelites did, but why? Well, we should consider that though they were free from slavery, they were still in hardship. The promised land was theirs, but they did not yet fully possess it. They wandered in the desert and became fearful, frustrated, and rebellious. As a result, they turned to the false religions of the peoples around them. Like the Israelites, God has saved us, and yet our salvation is not yet fully realized. In his wisdom, he has ordained that we remain here on earth in sinful bodies. As a result, we still have hardships. We struggle with sin. We observe evil around us and even within us. We experience pain, sickness, and death. We also, therefore, become fearful, frustrated, and rebellious. And like the Israelites, we turn to false gods. Some of these gods are obvious. Some are dangerously subtle. Consider the gods of pleasure, financial success, health, technology, or government. Consider the religions of education, social justice, or environmentalism. All too often in the midst of the struggles of life, these are the things that we turn to for comfort and salvation. 
They receive more of our devotion, and we think that by them we can obtain peace and happiness. We worship self-pleasure more than we worship the giver of true pleasure. We adore our health more than the one who gives and sustains life. We invoke wealth or technology or education or government programs for help, rather than he who even feeds the birds of the air. But it's not enough to simply avoid letting these things become idols in our lives. We must wholeheartedly devote all of ourselves to God. John Calvin described the positive, active obedience of the first commandment this way. The whole aim of our lives will be to revere, fear, and worship His majesty, to enjoy a share in His blessings, to have recourse to Him in every difficulty, to acknowledge, laud, and celebrate the magnificence of His works, to make Him, as it were, the sole aim of all our actions. This is a lofty goal, but it is the life to which we were called. It is also the life that we've been equipped to live through Jesus Christ. His words to the rich young ruler are to us as well. The rich young ruler's God was his wealth, and his religion was self-righteousness. He boasted, all these things I have kept from my youth. But Jesus replied, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and come, follow me. Let us also rid ourselves of our false gods and follow the true living God. This first of the Ten Commandments reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing and able, please kneel with me as we confess our sins to God. introduction this morning, I'm only going to ask you one question, and it's a question that I'm going to be answering within the sermon today, but I want this question rolling around in our heads as we come to the text, and it won't be answered until the end, so that's my way of keeping you plugged in, hopefully, through the entire sermon, because you're just going to be waiting to hear the answer to the question I'm about to ask you. It's an important question, and I think once you hear the answer, hopefully, if if you respond like I did, it's going to really open your eyes and result in an eruption of thanksgiving to God in light of what he has accomplished for us. As some of you will all, you'll know right away where I'm going with it. Wonderful. That's good. Some of you may not. Just sit back and listen, though, one way or the other. Here's the question. Let me get around to it finally. Why don't we pay the temple tax anymore? That's at the center of this passage here and our Lord's interaction with Peter, the temple tax. We don't pay it. Peter did, Jesus did, but we don't. Why not? Why don't we pay the temple tax? Let's find out. I'm going to begin in verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. 
However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The Word of God. Now one of the keys to understanding what is happening here is to make the connection between verses 22 and 23 and our Lord's interaction with Peter in verses 24 through 27. We have to understand how these two segments, if you want to call them that, relate to one another. Because they do relate. They are tied together. Even though at first glance it may not seem that way. Now what's happening in verses 22 and 23? Well, we're seeing that the disciples still have absolutely no idea as to why the Lord Jesus has come. They had no notion of a Messiah who would suffer and die. That just wasn't in the playbook for first century Jews. That's not what they were expecting from their Messiah. They were expecting a Messiah who was going to come in and lay waste to the oppressors, namely the Romans, and drive them out and reestablish the days of David once again. So when Jesus went around and talked about being delivered into the hands of men and then being killed and being raised, they were distressed when they heard that because they didn't get it. And obviously it would be easy for us on this side of Pentecost to look back at them and say, oh, those silly disciples, hadn't they done their devotions, hadn't they studied? Why didn't they get it? But let's remember, brothers and sisters, that had we been living then, we would have been as ignorant as they were. And that's something I want you to keep in mind here And when we look at verses 22 and 23, is that this is not only this ignorance we see in the disciples was not only present within them it was also uh, present in all of Israel all of Israel was ignorant of who the Messiah would be and what he would do and we know they were ignorant because what did they do to him they crucified so they didn't get it all of Israel didn't get it and the reason why I want to highlight that is because that has a lot to do Israel's ignorance of the cross has a lot to do with why Jesus was concerned with not giving offense later on here. I want to make that connection. Israel did not understand the cross, which is why Jesus did not want to give offense. I'll clarify that in a moment. But first I want to make an exegetical point on regard to this half shekel tax. What was that? Because we're not given much context here as to what the half shekel tax was for. So let me tell you briefly, it's based on uh, the book of Exodus in chapter 30 and verses 11 through 13. Uh, and this is a, a tradition, not a command that was being practiced by Israel at the time. And this half shekel tax was used for the maintenance of the temple, keeping the temple up and running. And there's an, the important thing I want you to understand is that connection between the tax and the temple. If you're writing notes, write that down. Write tax and an arrow pointing to temple. That was the point of the tax, the upkeep of the temple. So this passage is not about taxation. I want you to understand that. It's not about taxation. It is about the temple and how it relates to Christ's death and resurrection. That's what this passage is about. And we know that because of the purpose of the half-shekel tax, which was to keep the temple up and running. 
Now, we read in this passage that Jesus was exempt from the temple tax, that Israel was not. Israel was not. Why? Well, we have to remember why the temple was necessary. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I'm sure most of you here know why the temple was necessary. And the reason why the temple was necessary for Israel was because of her sin. That's why Israel needed the temple. She was sinful. She was sinful. So the temple's purpose was to satisfy the law of God. Because the law of God demanded what as the penalty for the forgiveness of sin? The shedding of blood, right? That's what happened in the temples. The sacrifices were made so that God, the, the sins of the people would be covered. As we read in Leviticus 17.11. That's why Israel needed the temple. Because of the law of God and their sinfulness. They made their sacrifices there. But there was a problem, and that's a problem that the book of Hebrews explains to us wonderfully. And the problem with the, with the temple was that the sacrifices that were offered there, namely the blood of bulls and goats, could not take away sin. And we read of that in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4, that it is impossible for the blood, for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sin or take it away. It, it can't do it. And so this meant that the temple and the sacrifices that were offered in the temple weren't really the remedy for Israel's sin. They were a reminder of Israel's sin. Remember, that's what the author of Hebrews tells us, chapter 9, chapter 10, that it is, especially in the beginning of chapter 10 of Hebrews, that there is no forgiveness there, that the sacrifices offered at the temple could not perfect the worship for the one who was drawing near, but merely served as a reminder of sin. That's all that the temple served as. As long as the temple stood, Israel was reminded of her sinfulness. Whenever an Israelite would pay that half-shekel tax, what was he being reminded of? His sin. The fact that the penalty against his sin had not yet been satisfied, and that's why he still needed a temple. Because more blood needed to be shed. All the time. Because of Israel's sinfulness. And even though that blood was shed all the time, because we know that the, the sacrifices were repetitious, they never satisfied the demand of God's law, which meant that Israel's sin always remained. She always had to offer more sacrifices, again and again and again, because her sin was never finally dealt with within the temple. And as a result of that, as a result of never finally dealing with her sin, Israel was held captive and was imprisoned under the law. She was not free under the Old Covenant, as Paul teaches us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. That penalty remained throughout her history. Those sacrifices remained necessary throughout her history because she was captive. And beyond that, beyond the fact that she was captive to the penalty of God's law against sin, Israel also remained strangers to God. Others or outsiders or even enemies, as the, those are the words that uh, can be translated in verse 25. Now it might sound odd to say that Israel was a stranger to God because he was their God and they were his people. So in what way were they strangers to him? Well, they were strangers to God in the sense that they could not draw near to him, could they? 
they could never draw near to him. What was the penalty? Well, let me put it this way. Say you were a, a, a believer living under the Old Covenant in Israel, in Jerusalem. There is the temple. Could you have waltzed on him to the most holy place, into the presence of the Lord, to fellowship and to seek help in time of need like we can now? Absolutely not. Do you know what would have happened to you under the Old Covenant had you attempted to do that? You would have been struck dead. Why? Because the penalty against sin had not been satisfied once and for all. And that meant no sinner could march into the presence of God. The penalty for that was death. Even the high priest himself, the descendant of Aaron, could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice. And if you went in on any other day, he would die as well. So the temple tax was a reminder that the penalty for sin had not been satisfied. It was also a reminder that Israel was still, in a very real sense, a stranger to God who could not draw near to him, but who was separated from him by her sin, unable to draw near. That's what the temple reminded Israel of. That's what that half-shekel tax represented. The half-shekel task was necessary because the temple was necessary. <clears throat> I want to stop here for a moment and consider something, because it's something we, we all have to consider, especially as professing Christians. And here's what we have to consider, saints. The temple is gone. It was leveled in 70 A.D., and we can all say praise God for that. Amen? been leveled. But here's the thing we have to remember. Even though the temple has been leveled, the law of God still demands that the penalty for sin still be satisfied. Do you recognize that? The penalty is the same as it was in the Old Covenant. Death to sinners. Death to sinners. Condemnation. Judgment. That's what the justice of God demands. It's interesting and somewhat discouraging that within the pale of modern evangelicalism, you get the idea, the sense sometimes from some pastors and from some believers that the God, God is now nicer in the New Covenant than He was under the Old. In the Old, He was kind of stingy and cranky, you know, and He would judge others. But now He's loving and kind because Jesus has softened Him up or something like that. Don't believe that for a moment. What a lie! God has always been loving, good, and just. And we need to remember that because we need to remember that the same God who would, would have struck you dead for entering into his presence under the, over the old covenant is the same God you worship today. And he has not changed. Nor has his demand for holiness in those who would draw near to him. He still demands it. He still demands sinless perfection. He still demands that the penalty against your sin be satisfied before you draw near to him. That has not changed because his holiness has not changed. The penalty still stands. And this is true for everyone who is a descendant of Adam. Is anyone in here not a descendant of Adam? Don't raise your hands. No one did, and that's good. We'd have trouble. I'd have a talk with Pastor Dirk afterward and say, you have work to do. We're all descendants of Adam. And that means we are all under that penalty. And you need to hear this 
because it means that this penalty is true for you. You need to take this personally because God does. He takes it personally with me and with you. He demands that you satisfy the penalty against sin, not because he's mean and not because that he's somehow cantankerous or something along those lines, but because he's holy and we're sinners. And he demands that you atone for your sin. Absolutely requires it. God never overlooks sin. We would like to think he does. He doesn't. He cannot. Praise God for that. Saints, we would not want a God who ever winks at sin. He would be a monster. But we serve a God who judges sin like it ought to be judged. And he requires, because he must judge sin, that we atone for it. He will never excuse it. He insists, he demands that the penalty be paid. And here's the question. Some of you are going to know the answer, hopefully most of you. But here's the question, and it's one we should always remind ourselves of, to, remind our, to be reminded of where we stand with God. What will you do? What will you offer to God to pay that penalty that stands against your sin? What are you going to offer to Him? His law condemns you. His law condemns me. His law says that I deserve wrath and condemnation. He says the same about you. How are you going to pay that penalty? What will you offer to him? More animal blood? More bulls and goats? Are you going to offer him your good behavior? Your hard work to keep the Ten Commandments? Your memorization of the Westminster Confession and Catechism? Your baptism? Are you going to offer those things to him? To satisfy the penalty against your sin? Saints despair of those things. Despair of them. They cannot satisfy the penalty against your sin. Not your good behavior. Not our doctrine. Nothing that we do can satisfy the penalty against our sin. The, the law of God is far more demanding that our Lord himself was free from the penalty against sin why why didn't he have to pay that temple tax well because again going back to the book of Hebrews what does the author of Hebrews tell us in Hebrews 7 in verses 26 and 27 about our Lord was he like us no of course not he was holy innocent unstained separated from sinners, from guys like Nate Harmon. He was untouched by Adam's transgression. That meant he had no penalty to satisfy. That also meant that our Lord had no need for the temple. He was exempt from the temple tax. He never had to make an offering for sin because he had no sin. He had nothing to atone for. He didn't need the temple, so he was exempt from paying that half shekel tax. He was free from it. He was free from it. And this shows us one of the major differences between the sinless son of God and the wicked sons of Adam like us. Jesus says something here about the sons and it's something we have to pay attention to. He says that the sons are free and of course there he's referring to himself so we have to ask this question when Jesus says the sons are free what is he talking about what does he mean when he says the sons are free well here's what he meant by free 
He meant freedom from the penalty against sin. The penalty that you and I must pay. That's what he meant. That's what it means to be free as a son. You are free from the penalty against sin. That's what it means to be a son of God. So as God's sinless son, Jesus was exempt from the temple tax because he didn't need the temple or its futile, repetitious sacrifices and its ineffective, impotent priests. He didn't need them. He had no sin to atone for, no penalty to pay, and he wasn't a stranger or an outsider to his father. Recognize that. There was no estrangement between the son and the father until the cross. When we hear our Lord cry out to him, and this is something that should always blow our minds when we hear it, when we read it, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That should crumble us, saints, when we read those words. And we recognize what was happening there on Calvary. That should ruin us in the right way for all the right reasons. When we hear our perfect Lord crying those words out to his Father. Because that tells us what was happening when he was nailed there. But until the cross, he had never been estranged from the Father. He didn't need to pay the tax. He was in perfect fellowship with the Father. Always doing his Father's will. He says in John 4, that was what he ate. That was his food to do the will of his Father who sent him. And so Jesus basically affirms, I don't need to pay the tax. I don't need it because I'm a son and I'm free. I have no penalty to pay. But then he says something to Peter that might, it caused me a little bit of trouble when I was first studying this passage because I thought the Lord was getting politically correct on me. He says to pay the tax anyway. Why? Oh, this is the part that made me worry. In order to give, in order to avoid giving offense. In order to avoid giving offense. Now let me ask you. When did Jesus ever, ever worry about offending people? With throughout the Gospels. When was he ever? He was offending people all of the time. By speaking the truth in all love. But he was always making them mad, especially the Pharisees. He was offending them on purpose because they needed to be offended. Right? If you're going to offend someone by telling them the truth, then offend by all means. Right? But when do we ever see the Lord being concerned about offending people? Why, what was his point there? Well, here's the point. Remember what I said earlier about Israel not getting the cross like the disciples. They didn't get it. They didn't know why Jesus had come. They didn't know what he was going to accomplish. They didn't understand. So here's his point in not wanting to give offense. If he had refused to pay the temple tax, that would have suggested to the people that the temple wasn't important. Jesus didn't want to send that statement. He didn't want to send the statement to the people watching at that point and to his disciples that the temple was unnecessary. The temple was necessary. And he wanted to affirm the necessity of the temple in order to affirm the necessity of atonement for sin. Besides, he was going to do something far more offensive than refusing to pay the half-shekel tax. Do you know what he was going to do that was so much more offensive? You, you do know. He was going to do nail to the cross. That's what he was going to do, the ultimate offense. He was going to be nailed to the cross. 
And when he was nailed to the cross, do you know what that would do to the temple? What has he done to the temple by his blood? He has rendered it absolutely obsolete and unimportant and unnecessary. Again, the author of Hebrews, what's he tell us? That these things are obsolete and are about to pass away. Because we don't need them anymore. We have a better covenant with a better sacrifice and a better priest and a better atonement. So we don't need the old covenant anymore. And that's what Jesus was going to do. That was going to be his offense, not merely refusing to pay the half-shekel tax. And of course we know he was going to do that by his death. And his death rendered the temple obsolete because he actually, by his atonement, he actually did take away sin once and for all by his single sacrifice. He succeeded where the law could not. He succeeded where the old covenant could not. He made full atonement for our sin on the cross. The book of Hebrews, chapter 7 through 10, is largely devoted to proving this very truth. Now let me ask you this question. It's going to seem odd to you at first. Does this offend you? The notion that Jesus made the temple obsolete by his blood shedding on the cross? Does that offend you? It certainly offended the Jews. Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians, that Christ crucified, Christ nailed to the cross, is a stumbling block to them. A stumbling block. Why? Well, it's a stumbling block to the Jews because they wanted to keep the temple and its inferior sacrifices. They didn't want to see the temple rendered obsolete to see his priesthood and his sacrifices pass away. Now why not? Why would the Jews of the day not want to lose the temple and the sacrifices? Why would they want to cling to those? Well, here's the answer. They wanted to cling to the temple because they were sinners like you and me. And they did not want to be confronted with the fact that all of their religiosity and all of their formalism could not save them from the penalty against their sin. They had been putting their faith in their religion. They had been putting their faith in the temple and its sacrifices. And they believed, many of them, that simply by doing these things, by keeping the forms of the sacrifices, that that was enough to atone for their sins. And when Christ died on the cross, he realized that all of their formalism was inadequate to save them. And like them, saints, we do not like being confronted with the reality of what our sin deserves. We do not like to hear that. It's painful. It's humbling, isn't it, to hear what we really deserve. That's why the cross offends us. Because when we look at the cross, we are seeing where we stand with God apart from Christ. We are getting a picture of what we deserve. Christ crucified tells us, you need this because you're a sinner. And you cannot save yourself. Does that offend you? That idea that apart from Christ and his shed blood, 
everything you do is absolutely and utterly powerless to save you? That you are utterly wicked to the core apart from his blood and worthy only of condemnation? Does that offend you at all? Am I trying to offend you? I'm just telling you the truth. Am I trying to stir you up a little? Yes, we should be. Whenever the cross is brought up, we should be stirred, saints, when the cross is being declared to us. Speaking of being stirred up, <clears throat> do you want to know one of the chief ways you can tell whether or not you know and love Christ? Can we know? Yes, we can. What's one of the biggest ways, one of the greatest ways, one of the most important ways we can know whether or not we love Jesus? This is certainly not the only way. Don't misunderstand me, but it is crucial. You must consider how you've responded to his death. If you know Christ and you love him and the spirit resides in you, then you will have responded to his death in a very particular way. Pretenders and hypocrites, at least in my experience, will attend to avoid the cross. They don't want to spend much time thinking or talking about what happened there. Why? Because it's offensive. It's offensive to think about what happened there because it reminds us again of what we deserve. It's not hard, at least down in Indiana, we have churches all over the place. They're coming out our ears. And yet I keep hearing from folks who visit us that we live in a, in a wasteland, spiritually speaking. And one of the reasons we live in a wasteland down in our area is because the cross is never preached. Or very rarely preached in the churches around us because of its offensiveness. So it's very easy to avoid the cross. And pretenders and hypocrites will find ways to avoid it. And they'll emphasize other things that Jesus said, like love thy neighbor, do unto others, do not judge, and so on and so forth the golden rule, but they won't talk about the cross, or they will keep the cross a mere doctrinal abstraction as opposed to being a truth that utterly ruins them in its confrontation of their sin, and at the same time, the wonderful hope it offers by showing us the grace of God. But for those who know Christ, for those who understand what he has done for them, the cross means everything. Everything. You will die before you will deny what Christ accomplished on Calvary for you, if you know him. Those who know Christ, when they think of him crucified, and when they think of those words he said that I mentioned earlier, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what their hearts do when they hear those words and they read of the crucified Savior? Their hearts are not offended. Their hearts do not recoil. Their hearts overflow with love and worship at the very thought of their beloved Lord being nailed to a tree for their sake. That's the response of the heart that knows Christ to the message of the cross. Worship, love, coming apart at the seams with gratitude unto God. It makes them hate their sin 
Do you hate your sin when you think of what happened on the cross? When you think of him being nailed there for you and you see your hands still filthy with sin? Do you, are you moved to hate it and to repent of it when you think of what it cost Christ? You should. It should drive us to repentance. If it's not driving you to repentance, examine your heart. Why not? If you are not keeping with repentance in your life, then what does the cross mean to you? What do you think happened there? Why don't you hate your sin? How does your heart respond to Christ on the cross? Does it result in worship coming out of every pore? Or does it offend you? Don't be offended. He broke you. He healed you. Be redeemed by Christ crucified. I want you to notice something else. Jesus doesn't actually pay the temple tax. Well, you say, well, Nate, hold, hold, hold on a moment. Yes, yeah, he does. What are you talking about? Well, hold on. Bear with me. What does he tell Peter to do? Does he say, Peter, go to our treasury, take out a shekel, and go pay? No. He says, go catch a fish. And in, in, Gal in the Sea of Galilee, it's kind of like Indiana, they have these really big catfish swimming around in the Sea of Galilee. Huge, evidently. And they, they eat shiny things. They're kind of like crows or toddlers. If you see a shiny thing, they'll put it in their mouth. And they have such catfish there, and that's probably what Peter caught. We, we don't know for sure. But the point I want you to know is that that was someone else's coin that Jesus used. The Father provided by his providence for that tax. There was a coin in the fish's mouth that covered the tax, so Jesus could avoid offending. But he did not pay it himself. He took a coin from a fish's mouth. It was provided for him. And the thing that really awestruck me when I read this, and it's easy to overlook when we're reading it. It's so easy to overlook. How, how much money did Peter find in that catfish? Half shekel? No. He found a whole shekel. And what did he say to Peter? He said, Peter... Go and pay my tax and yours. Do you understand the profundity of what was happening there when Jesus said to Peter, pay my tax and yours? Peter wasn't paying the tax either. The penalty had been provided for him as much as it had for the Lord Jesus. Peter was being treated as a son along with Christ. I suggest to you, saints, that this is a picture of how God has provided for our greatest need as well. I asked you that question earlier today at the introduction. Why don't we have to pay the temple tax today? And the answer is because we don't need the temple anymore. We don't need the temple. We don't have to pay a tax to maintain the temple. 
Well, Nate, how can you say that? Because you just told us a few moments ago that the penalty against sin has not changed. The penalty is the same as it's always been. Yes, but here's the answer. Here is what has changed. Christ has satisfied the penalty for us on the cross. That's why we don't have to pay the penalty any longer, brothers and sisters. Because Christ has paid it in full on our behalf. So we now, through his blood, are tax exempt. He tells us later on in this very gospel of Matthew, in chapter 20, verse 28, that he came to give himself as a ransom for us to pay that penalty against, God's, against us through the law of God. We also learn in the word of God that he became an outsider to God so that we might become the adopted sons and daughters of God. He was estranged from the Father. I've already discussed that with you this morning. I'm not reading the shit. But he bore the penalty. He was estranged so we could be adopted and brought near. And that means that we are now free from the penalty against our sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. You believe that. What happened to the cross? Christ satisfied the penalty. And you know what that means? That means there's nothing for us left to pay. And that is such an important point for us to remember, saints. It's important for us to remember so that as we are striving to overcome sin in our lives, we, we remember that while we must put our sin to death and while we must be sanctified, and walk according to the Spirit, the one thing we will never have to do is satisfy the penalty that stood against us. Because Christ has done that for us. We do not make satisfaction because He made satisfaction on our behalf. So in your struggle against sin, that is the one thing you will never have to do. You will never have to satisfy the penalty against your sin. I'll close with this point, because I think whenever we hear of the cross, these things should be said. If you have not surrendered yourself to Christ, if you have not recognized and seen your sinfulness and wickedness in the light of God's holiness, and if that has not driven you to in despair to flee to Christ and Him crucified, clinging to Him in faith, to understand you are still under that penalty. The penalty still stands against you if you've not fled to Christ in faith. And there's nothing you can do to satisfy it on your own. So don't attempt to satisfy it on your own. Flee to Christ and find the complete and total forgiveness that He purchased for us there on the ship. The covenant that God established with his people continues to point to the cross. It's the bridge that separates us from Christ and uh, provides, that, provides that bridge. God points us to the cross ever and always. Paul resolved to know nothing but Christ and to him crucified and to boast only in the cross. All four gospels 
climax at the cross. And it's the cross of history where God kept his covenant to be faithful to his people. From the very beginning of history, God was pointing to the cross, clothing Adam and Eve with the skins of animals that had to die for their covering. Adam and Eve had to leave God's presence, but they left covered. We do not know God's presence like Adam and Eve did before they sinned. Even now, after Jesus has paid it all, there is still a separation, but we are covered. We, like they, are not justified with animal skins, but now we are justified with the blood of Jesus. And as you look at the cross, and today as you partake of the bread and the wine, remember to see Jesus at the cross. Look at the cross and hear Jesus telling you, I've got you covered. You are covered and you are invited to the Lord's table if you've been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you are under the authority and in good standing of Christ and his body, the church, by eating the bread and drinking together, we acknowledge that we are sinners. We are without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God, and that we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So welcome to Christ's table, where he has covered it all. Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.